Open your Bibles to Ephesians 4 as we come back to this great chapter we started a few weeks ago. You remember last uh, time uh, we sort of introduced this passage as addressing the new life and framed it in the context of the new year as we think towards the next 12 months of our life or so and we think about where we stand, not just in business matters and uh, you know, other sort of logistical matters of our life, but more importantly, where we stand in our walk with God, we ought to be desiring to see growth. We ought to be desiring to see progress in our sanctification. And that's really what this entire passage is about. It's about progressing in your sanctification. It's about growing in conformity to the image of Christ. Or to frame it in the context of another verse, it is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's what it's really all about, working out what God has worked in. You may know that verse from Philippians. Uh, uh, Paul uh, prescribes uh, for us that we should work out our salvation, not work up to our salvation, not work at our salvation, not in any sense that somehow we we are establishing our salvation by our works. We're told we're at, throughout Scripture that we're, re, we're received, we're accepted in the Beloved. We rest forever in His grace, completely satisfied by His work on the cross. We're saved completely by Christ. And yet there's an element where we have to bring to fulfillment, we have to bring to open completion, we have to bring out what God, by His salvation, has worked within. And this is the context of Ephesians. If you know, in chapter 2, Paul says that God saved us by grace, but then he immediately says He saved us for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, this salvation is not just a salvation for for the sake of eternity, the salvation just simply from God's eternal judgment, but a salvation so that in the present life that we are manifesting a righteousness that is, that is in, in keeping or in coordination with God. Or as Paul says it here in Ephesians 4, verse 22, he says we're to put off the old self which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That is the old way we used to live of following desires, following passions, following beliefs which were untrue. Following pathways that promised but never delivered. Desires which always left us empty. They're deceitful desires. He says we're to put off all of that be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, God has created a new self. It is a work of His hand, a work of salvation. And it's been created after His likeness and we are to continually be putting that on, continually be working out what that salvation is within us. Now, to be specific, Paul unfolds for us a number of examples of exactly what he's talking about, of how this new life is to be brought forth, how this new creation is to be manifesting itself. And this is what we've been looking at beginning a few weeks weeks ago with a contrast between the old life and the new life. 
specifically in the area of falsehood and truth. Paul tells us that we're to lay aside a life of falsehood and we're to put on a life of honesty, of truthfulness, of frankness in our conversation with one another. We're to lay aside everything that would not resemble God and we're to put on the likeness of God who we're told in Scripture cannot lie. Or it's impossible for God to lie, as it says in another passage. So that means that we as believers are to be people who put aside every form of falsehood and exaggeration and excuse-making and insinuation and concealment. And we're to put on truthfulness. We're to put on openness. We're to put on honesty. Well, today we want to look at another contrast that Paul sets before us, adding to that uh, that transformation, adding to that progressive uh, sanctification, Paul sets before us a contrast between anger and self-control. Anger and self-control. He says in verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The life of anger, the life of rage, we might even say a life of irritation, frustration, all that life that characterizes the world around us, Paul says, is not supposed to characterize us as believers, as those who are in Christ. And it ought to be obvious to you that it it is what characterizes the world, that you are in a world of rage, that you're in a world that, that is full of rage and even celebrates rage, that highlights rage in its, in its entertainment, in its movies. It is the glorified hero who, who faces some sort of injustice or faces some sort of uh, person dissing them and takes it in their own hands to seek their own revenge, to mete out the kind of punishment, and to stand tall in the end, having overcome and vanquished all their enemies. Giving place to this rage and this anger is legitimized, is celebrated, is honored in every way. And people resonate with it because we're in a a country, we're in a nation that is literally raging with aggression and with bitterness and with anxiety and tension and anger. We've seen in recent months whole cities being ripped apart with tension and animosity towards different groups of people and just pent up anger just coming to the surface all around us. There's discrimination, there's combativeness, there's cursing, there's on a global scale, there's genocide, there's terrorism. On a local scale, there's all kinds of rage and anger and road rage and and just frustration. This anger just ripping apart communities, ripping apart families, ripping apart uh, places of business, and really even destroying our own bodies. As there is, there is just untold uh, implications in terms of heart disease and ulcers and all kinds of illnesses that are linked to anger. You have anger management programs. You have all these 
domestic violence un, uh, you know, recovery programs. You have all these uh, people trying to bring domestic violence and frustration and, and abuse out of the corners and the dark uh, uh, alleys and bring it to the surface and deal with it. You have cognitive behavioral therapy all around you. All of this testifying to the pervasiveness of anger. In fact, psychologists would tell us that every day, every single day, one in five people will be overcome with violent attacks of rage. That is to say that one in five people will give place to some frustration, some anxiety, some tension, will give place to it with some violent reaction. That doesn't necessarily mean physical abuse. It might be verbal abuse. It might be emotional abuse. It might be just manipulation or whatever it might be. People find themselves in these situations when things are not going their way, when they're facing injustice, when they're facing unfairness. They might be on the other side of the phone from some agency that's just running roughshod over them like some forgotten number in a bunch. They might be in some work situation where they're looking at at, uh, injustice and unfairness and being passed by or ignored again. They might be in their home where they have tried and tried and tried to get their children or to get their family or to even get their spouse to go along with what they feel like is reasonable and they're not seeing any success. And so they they just give way to anger. And people see it all the time. And they face it all the time. We're in a world of anger. From the smallest personal scale to the large community scale to the global scale. A world of rage. And in the midst of all that, what the world would tell you that you need to do is you need to vent. You need to vent. You have this frustration You have this anger, you have this rage, you need to get it off your chest. You need to go smash something, burn something, hit something, yell at something, whatever it might be. You just need to get this out. And so the world's answer is vent. The world's answer is to get it off your chest. The world's answer is to get it all out there because that's the best way to deal with it. Well, the biblical answer is, is just the opposite. In fact, the Bible would tell you that all that counsel and all that so-called wisdom of the world in terms of venting and getting it off your chest is just one more in that long line of deceitful schemes, of deceitful desires. That's just one more way that the world wants to deceive you about what to do with your anger. Because the Bible is very clear what to do with your anger. It says in James 1.19, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And why is that? James 1.20 says, the very next verse, Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there it is. I mean, this is really the issue. It's not just an issue of emotion. It's an issue of what does your anger do? What does it produce? What is the result of it? What's the product? And James' point is clear. Anger does not 
produce righteousness. Or as the Old Testament says in Psalm 37, refrain from anger, forsake wrath, do not fret, because it tends only to evil. Proverbs 29, verse 22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. So no matter where you turn in Scripture, you find the same recurring theme, that anger doesn't produce righteousness, that all it does is tend to evil, that all it does is stir up more strife, and it only increases transgression. Or we would say in modern terms, it makes the problem worse. It just makes the problem worse. And so consequently, the repeated warnings of Scripture are to beware of anger. Don't let it take hold of you because the product is never good. And it's just the opposite of what God desires in your life. Now, you might be thinking, if you're really biblically literate, you might be thinking, wasn't Jesus angry? I mean, didn't he go into a temple courtyard one time and take a long leather strap with little shards of chipped bone in the end of it and take that thing and hurl it at people? Didn't he do that one time? And not only that, didn't he get angry at times with even his opponents and his enemies, the Pharisees? Well, in fact, yes, he did. Mark chapter 3 even notes one time that when Jesus was in a confrontation with the Pharisees, he looked at them and was angry. But this is a different kind of anger. You have to understand. It's not the anger Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. It's not the anger James is talking about or Proverbs or Psalms. This is a very different kind of anger. It's not the anger that characterizes the world. It's not the anger that you deal with in a typical day uh, of frustration. This is righteous anger that is completely unfocused on yourself. It is born, in most cases, out of a zeal for the abuse of others. It is born out of an interest to aid those and protect those innocent victims who you otherwise have no connection to. This isn't you attaching yourself to some movement or cause so that you can give vent to your own frustrations. This is a righteous anger that is, that is stirred up on behalf of someone you have no connection to and their abuse or their innocence. And this is what is referred to as righteous anger. Or in some cases, it is, it is a manifest in defense of God's own name. But whatever it is, it has nothing to do with you. And nothing to do with your personal struggles and frustrations. And none of that is the anger that Paul has in mind. None of it's what James has in mind. None of it's what we're talking about here. Because the anger that James is talking about, the anger that Paul's talking about, is that anger that is generated out of a sense of self-interest or self-protection. In some sense, it's almost the natural emotional reflex that you and I feel when we're in a situation when we are threatened or something we have is threatened. The emotional spark, we might say, that suddenly goes off within us when we feel some sense of attack. And in fact, the word that Paul uses here, or gidzo, 
refers to that initial emotional response more than it does sort of the long settled and sustained seething and bitterness that we sometimes associate with anger. That word is used in other places of Scripture, but here Paul's talking about that that emotional reaction. And so with this word, Paul referring to this sort of initial burst of emotion, he sort of brings it in line with what James eventually talks about when he talks about the quarrels and fights that come among us whenever we have anger rising within us. And James goes on to say it's because of some personal interest, because of some personal desire, or as he says, some personal pleasure. There's something at the heart of it related to our own personal interest that we're feeling attacked, a desire for something or control over something. And when you do that, when you respond in that way, when we respond sinfully, this is the kind of anger we're talking about. It's interesting, James goes on to associate it with idolatry. He actually refers to those people who are giving way to those kinds of anger responses and calls them idolaters. And why is he doing that? Because so often what we are responding to, what we're trying to protect, is whatever we felt gave us a sense of security, a sense of joy, a sense of pleasure, whatever it might be. I mean, it might be, it might be a job. It might be a, a financial stake that you have in something and you feel like it's attacked. You might be feeling like someone's trying to steal some money from you or whatever it might be. Or it could even be something as simple as your plans for the evening that you had convinced yourself We're going to be a source of joy and pleasure for you. And someone has thrown a wrench in your plans. And so you respond angrily. And what James is telling us is that every time we do that, we have just manifest that we are now trusting in something other than God for our joy, for our security, for our pleasure, whatever it might be. And that's why he calls them idolaters that's why he calls them idolaters because some idol has been set up in your heart and now someone is attacking your idol the idol of your finances the idol of your plans the idol of your pleasures the idol of your security and you respond angrily you respond with attacks you respond with frustration and all these things the scripture says, are not producing the righteousness of God. That's the end. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate test. Is what is your response producing? What is it producing? What is all your venting and getting it off your chest doing? And understanding that helps you understand what Paul says here in Ephesians 4 when he says, be angry, but do not sin. In other words, it's almost a concession. It's almost like he's acknowledging that we sometimes can't control our emotions, that sometimes that that urgency, that sense will rise within us. But what Paul's telling us here is don't allow your anger then to take control of you and to lead you into an unrighteous or an evil response. 
some act or some behavior that will further violate God's word and will most likely complicate your problem. This is that point where we allow our emotions to take control of us and what begins with a somewhat natural emotion now becomes an ungodly motive and it pushes us further and further into unrighteous and into self-centered behavior. That raises a question. Well, if I'm not going to respond that way, what do I do with all of this emotion? What do I do with all this or, you know, rising blood pressure or whatever it might be? Do I just sort of bottle all that stuff up? Am I supposed to just sort of put a lid on it and internalize all that stuff and just let it churn inside of me until hopefully with the passing of time it just goes away? What do I do? With all of this stuff. Well. Paul says. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. You don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's actually. Best understood in the context of a whole bunch of commands of God. That are given in similar tones. There are all kinds of Old Testament laws. Which were given with this condition. That they were to be done, they were to be completed, they were to be fulfilled before the sun goes down. And this was all spelled out by God in His wisdom because He understood or He understands the natural tendency in all of us that if we don't take care of something today, if we try to put it off till tomorrow, we are more likely to forget about it. Or at least that's me. I don't know about you. I mean, I could name you any number of things in the last 30 days that I did not take care of that day. And then I stumble on it a week, sometimes two weeks later, kicking myself because I forgot about it. Because it's just our natural tendency when we don't deal with something in the immediate that it just becomes easier and easier and easier to forget about it in the days to come. I mean, this is why you read in the Old Testament things like if you borrow someone's cloak, you're to return the cloak by the end of the day. Or in cases of, uh, of hiring, if you hire a worker, the Old Testament law says you're supposed to pay them their wages before the sun goes down. And this is, of course, in an economy when there was, uh, this was the typical structure of, of uh, employment. There were, there were day laborers with whom you, won't, you don't have any long-term relationship. Sometimes you may not even know them. You just go to a place and you gather them up to go uh, harvest in your field. That might be the only time the entire year that you would even have any contact with them. There's no long-term contract. There's no agreements. There's no relationship even. And so he understands, God understands in his law, the necessity then in that context of dealing with things in the moment, dealing with things before the sun goes down so that there's not the tendency to overlook, not the tendency to forget, not the tendency to do all of that, which would lead to misunderstanding and even potential conflict. Well, that's basically Paul's point here. Don't let a day pass with unresolved issues in your heart. Don't let resentments pile up. Deal with matters daily before any buried anger or resentment leads you into further sin and issues between you and a brother or sister grow larger 
and the distance wider between you and them. And certainly, 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 do not sweep things under a carpet, hoping they'll go away in time. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Handle issues between you and another believer daily. As one uh, man said, quote, no one's shoulders are broad enough to bear the weight of tomorrow's problems. Neither are they big enough to carry yesterday's resentments, end quote. Or in the words of our Savior, sufficient for today are its own problems. And the last thing you want to do is put off something thinking it'll be easier tomorrow when it's never, it never is, right? I mean, tomorrow's got its own problems coming at you. And the day after that, more problems. And they just pile up and it just becomes easier and easier and easier to neglect, to do what you have to do. God wants problems handled one day at a time. Every problem dealt with in as timely a manner as possible. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you are supposed to uh, in the day with a catalog of grievances as if you lay in the bed beside your spouse and say, okay, honey, well, at 8.08 this morning and then at 9.10 and then 11.12 or whatever it might be, you're not supposed to give a whole rundown of every annoyance in your life. In other words, this is framed within a larger context of the grace of the gospel. And we all understand how gracious God is with us. I mean, even from the time you woke up this morning until this very point, I can assure you that you have been less than as righteous as God. In other words, there are imperfections still in your life. There are ways in which you still need to grow. There are ways in which we violate the righteousness of God and the word of God or the law of God that we're not even aware of. And I'm thankful that God doesn't give me the full picture of all the ways that I fail him because it would overwhelm me. What God does is very graciously and like a, uh, like a loving parent with their little child overlooks all my immaturities and overlooks all the, the uh, little uh, offenses and graciously helps me deal with the ones that are most important in my life as I continue to grow. And this is really the paradigm for you and I. This is what the scripture means when it says it is the glory of a man to overlook a transgression. It's your glory. It's a testimony of your spiritual maturity to be able to not be offended by all kinds of little things that really could offend someone. Or as the scripture says in another place, that love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, whenever we are not letting the sun go down on our anger, we're not talking about every single annoyance and every single offense that has to be addressed every single day. We're talking about those which are either so large in their magnitude or so uh, continuous in, in, in their pattern that they cannot be overlooked or they or we might say that they affect you emotionally they affect you in your relationship you can't lay them to rest in your thought life they just bounce around back and forth because they keep 
coming up again or because they have so violated trust or they so violated intimacy or whatever they might be. They've just grown that large that you must deal with them. And Paul's admonition is that you're not to carry those things into the next day. What can't be overlooked in love needs to be dealt with directly, intentionally, graciously, and constructively. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's uh, disconnected that just a couple verses later in verse 29, we'll look at it next week, Paul gets into our language and after telling people to deal with the issues between themselves, he immediately tells them, but let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth but only such as is good for edification and only according to the need of the moment. In other words, you don't, this is not an excuse for you to vent uh, unconstructively over these issues, but it's just simply saying that you are not to allow a wound to then become a foul and festering and infected sore or a sore spot between you and another, sort of like, you know, a saddle sore when you uh, get some sort of rub on your leg and, uh, from, from riding, you're not going to be likely to go out on that ride again or ride that horse until the sore's gone, right? Well, the same thing between you and another person. When there's a sore spot between you and them, you're going to create distance. You're going to isolate. You're going to ostracize in hopes that that sore somehow is going to uh, heal itself. And you're going to, therefore, have broken and damaged fellowship. God wants you to deal with it. As quickly as possible. It's always been a key principle in God's word. Leviticus 19, 17 says, You are not to hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin by him. You don't harbor hate in your heart, but you reason frankly. Openly is another way to say that. With them. Or more to the point, if you have your Bibles, look over at Matthew chapter 5, which is, of course, Jesus' exposition of the law. Matthew 5, and, uh, of course, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with the issue of anger, beginning in verse 21. And this is what he says. Matthew five twenty-one. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hellfire. So Jesus is talking about anger in all of its expressions, and all of its manifestations, whether it is on one extreme murderous activity or anywhere below that, any kind of insult, any kind of abusive language, any kind of derogatory language, any kind of, we could add to that, manipulation or spiteful isolation or attempts to shame someone, whatever the response is, Jesus is saying it all arises from the same place, from the same heart of anger, and it will all be dealt with by God. All of it is liable to judgment. But I want you to notice in verse 23, because Jesus continues his discussion of anger, and many people don't draw the connection, although it's clear in the text. Because he says in verse 23, so, or some versions say, therefore, in other words, based on everything that he says, here's a progression in what Jesus tells us about anger. 
He says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So the scenario is two people who have been alienated from one another. They, there is an offense. There is some sort of angry response. And Jesus' instruction is clear. You need to deal with it. How quickly? How urgent? Well, it is immediate, even if you are in the middle of a worship service. Now, before you get up, just understand that Jesus will go on to say things like, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, and right eye gouge out if it's causing you to sin. In other words, there might be a little bit of hyperbole at play here, but all for the sake of emphasizing a point that you and I need to deal with unreconciled relationships. You and I need to deal with offenses. You and I need to deal with anger as quickly as possible. Now we frame this, of course, in all the other principles of wisdom, of communication within the context of Scripture. You know, Scripture tells us things like, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in due season. In other words, there are ways... Uh, that you can, by choosing the right time and the right place, make your words more easy to swallow. You can make them more beautiful. You can make them more attractive to the person who's hearing them, like apples of gold and settings of silver. So there's a, there's a wisdom at which we approach this reconciliation, and we understand it whenever we sort of... Uh, Uh, put the whole picture of reconciliation together because here in Matthew, you'll notice who is going to whom. In other words, he's he's not talking to a, a person here necessarily who is angry. He says, if you are there at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, this is probably referring to someone who is not angry, but someone who has made someone angry. And he's saying to them, even in that situation, you are obliged to take the initiative to go and have open and honest and frank conversations about the issues to be reconciled with your brother. You may not be grieving over it. You might be the source of it. But you still have a responsibility to take the initiative. On the flip side, the rest of Scripture helps us to understand that this is a two-way street. Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, if you see your brother sinning, you're to go to him. In other words, if you identify some offense, and even by, by uh, uh, implication in the remainder of the text, if you're personally offended, if you have to go on and forgive your brother 70 times 7, as he says a few verses later, if you're personally offended, then what you're to do is to go to that brother in a a private way, in as private a way as possible, to deal with the issues between you and him. Some hurt, some anger, some offense that's come up between the two of you. To the best of your ability, you're to make issues right. That, by the way, takes us to another passage, Romans chapter 12 is another key text when it comes to how we respond 
in issues where we're frustrated and angry and maybe tempted to be resentful. Romans 12, a passage that refers to retaliation and revenge and enemies and all those things. But interestingly, in the context, the only time it specifically mentions anger or wrath or anything like that is in reference to God's anger. It says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay evil, excuse me, yeah, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When it comes to anger, Paul says very simply, leave it to God. Leave all that to God. Your responsibility is not to make people pay for your frustrations, for your irritations. Your responsibility is to live at peace with others so far as it depends on you. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about your capability. Or he's not talking about, we might say, your aptitude. Or, or something like that. I've talked to people in the past and I've shared with them this verse and they say, well, pastor, you don't understand. It ain't possible. I mean, it's impossible. It, it, it ain't possible or it is impossible for me to get over this. I just can't. I cannot uh, uh, get over this issue. It's not possible for me to, to lay it aside. Well, it's not that you can't. According to Scripture, it's that you won't. Because the scripture never suggests, or I should say it always supposes, that forgiveness is an issue of the will, not an issue of the person's ability. So if you are not forgiving, it's because you do not want to forgive. When Paul says that you are to live at peace with someone as as much as is possible within you. What he's talking about are the concrete actions that you're able to take. You are to take all of them. And he even spells it out specifically what he's talking about when he says, for example, repay no one evil for evil. In other words, it is your, not your ability, but your responsibility that he is referencing here. And it's your responsibility not to retaliate. Not to make the issue worse. Not to repay evil with evil. Not to sinfully isolate someone or ostracize someone or make someone feel shamed or whatever it might be. To insult and ridicule or, or maliciously slander someone. So, so as much as is possible, as everything within your control, you don't do those kinds of things. As a matter of fact, you overcome evil with good. So when someone has offended you, someone's frustrated you, someone's infuriated you, what you do, what is possible within your grasp is to repay evil with good. You do good 
you repay with kindness, not with retaliation. And you leave all that to God. That's the paradigm. Don't let your anger control you. If you're stirred to anger, don't let it lead you into sin. It only results in evil. It does not accomplish the righteousness of God. It brings further strife. All of those warnings of Scripture. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't do anything good. So leave it to God. And you repay evil with good. And you respond to frustrations not as obstacles, but as opportunities. To recognize that you had maybe some pathway mapped out in your mind about where you wanted to go, how you wanted to live, where you wanted to proceed. And that somewhere along the way, that, that, that plan that you had has become a process in the hand of God to lead you somewhere else. That you had, you had some, uh, 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 I guess, some dream or something like that, that God's changing into an avenue of growth. An opportunity for you to demonstrate the grace of God, to show worship towards Him, to put your trust in Him and not in yourself, or to put your trust in Him and not in whatever you're cherishing in your heart. So instead of seeing all these things as obstacles, you have to retrain your mind, or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, renew your mind to look at them as opportunities that God places in your life almost every day. You're on the phone, you're frustrated with some agency, some company, some, some person, and rather than letting your temperature rise and rather than saying things that would be shameful if they were ever associated with the name of Christ, you return evil with good. You're in a situation and you're frustrated with people in your home. Rather than looking at that as some impediment, you look at it as an avenue of growth. Something that God now wants to take you down to further refine you. And to bring about His character within you. Don't, don't pursue anger. It only produces unrighteousness. Back over to Ephesians 4. It's not the only thing it produces. I want you to notice one other thing that Paul highlights in his admonition here. Because not only does he tell us that we need to deal with this anger uh, immediately... But he also wants us to understand a very important motivating factor. Verse 27. We want to do this because we don't want to give opportunity to the devil. Literally place. It's not the word opportunity. It's the word place. You do not want to make a home in your heart for Satan. You do not want to give him a place in your heart. Satan wants that. You may not realize it. You may not want to admit it. 
But when you give your heart over to anger within your home, within your place of business, within your daily conduct, you are placing your heart, your lips, your life in His hands as His instrument to wield for His destructive purposes against your family, against your career, against your church, against your own body even. You may believe that this anger and this bitterness that you're sort of cherishing and bottling up inside is just something between you and yourself. That it's just no one really knows about it and you'll deal with it maybe somewhere down the road. But the scripture is telling you here, someone knows about it. And it's not just God. It's Satan. And he knows about it and he wants to exploit it. And you shouldn't be blind to how he will use it as his special tool. Very similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 when he is instructing the church there about unforgiveness. And they had someone in the church who had sinned uh, in some way and now has repented and wanted to come back into the church. And the people were maybe grudgingly or maybe reluctantly uh, allowing him to come, but they weren't opening their hearts. They weren't opening their doors. They weren't opening their lives to this person. They might have been tolerating him within the church, but they certainly were not warmly embracing him. And they were continuing to make him feel the shame of his actions by his isolation. And Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the schemes of Satan. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to go through life as if somehow this is something you're blind to, that Satan loves to use unforgiveness, or we're told here in this passage, he loves to use anger. In fact, I I don't know anywhere in Scripture where a scheme of Satan is so explicitly spelled out. I mean, we know he has all kinds of ways he wants to destroy people, but Paul tells us, don't be ignorant of at least two, unforgiveness and anger. I mean, later on, Paul will tell us about the spiritual war that we're in and how we have to take this armor of God and prepare ourselves to do all this battle. But as any good uh, military tactician would tell you, all the armor in the world will not replace simply avoiding the ambush. Don't allow yourself to blindly go into his pathways and to make yourself the instrument of God's enemy. As if somehow that will be satisfactory, as if somehow that will be enjoyable, as if somehow that will be the fulfillment that you're looking for. Don't give place. Don't give opportunity to Satan to do his destructive work in your life. Deal with anger in the right way. Deal with it in a prompt way. Don't let anger lead you to destructive, ungodly, unrighteous, sinful responses. Display the love of God by overlooking as many matters as you can. Put on the love of Christ. But if necessary, so far as depends on you, make peace. Make peace and be quick 
about it. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful for this very clear reminder. One which speaks to all of us who find ourselves in frustration and tension all the time. Lord, we confess that we haven't viewed those as opportunities to glorify you, that we haven't given place to your wrath and left it to your hands. We confess to you that we have set up idols, which when they're attacked, we vigorously defend and result in the manifestation of what's really in our hearts. Lord, forgive us for anger and help us to put on self-control. Help us to be diligent to deal with all these issues that arise in a godly manner, in a timely manner, in a peaceful manner, doing all that we can to deal with issues frankly and honestly, graciously, lovingly, and in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.